0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins.
1: Welcome, and thanks for joining me for this Wednesday edition of Washington Watch. The reverberations of the leaked Supreme Court opinion overturning Roe and Casey continue.
2: How dare they?
3: How dare they try to stop her from determining her own future? How dare they try to deny women their rights, and their freedoms.
1: How dare they support the sanctity of human life? That was Vice President Kamala Harris speaking last night at the annual gala of Emily's List, which is a political organization that funds pro-abortion candidates. There was more reaction as Democratic leader Chuck Schumer rallied Senate Democrats on the steps of the Capitol.
0: Democrats are going to fight this decision all the way for as long as it takes. We will not relent. We will not give up. We know history is on our side and we're determined to preserve this precious rights that are the bedrock of this great nation.
1: I'm hard pressed to say that abortion is at the bedrock of the rights in America. But it is interesting to see that the Democrats now are going to have to use the legislative process to do what the courts have done for them 50 years and that is to impose abortion on the nation. Well, Oklahoma Senator James Lankford, chairman of the Senate Values Action Team, will join me in just a moment for a reaction to this draft opinion of the Supreme Court. And yesterday, I told you we were going to discuss the Biden administration's Ministry of Truth that has the administration on the defensive.
4: The mandate is not to adjudicate what is true or false online or, or otherwise. Um, it will operate in a nonpartisan and apolitical manner.
1: As I said yesterday, I didn't believe uh, Ms. Saki yesterday, and I don't believe her today. Uh, but you can believe this. We will talk about it because Senator Langford is spearheading an effort to defund it. So we'll talk about it with him as well. Also, as the shock of the way the nation learned of the court's pending ruling on Roe has passed, the focus now turns to the actual draft opinion. If the final opinion is anything near what the draft states, this, my friend, is an answer to prayer. It is the result of years of efforts on behalf of many. It is the result of the work of Care Pregnancy Center volunteers. It is the result of pastors preaching and teaching on the sanctity of human life. And it's the result of political involvement, quite frankly, whether... As candidates or as elected officials standing up for the unborn or volunteers, simply putting up yard signs. Based on this opinion, what does the future look like? We're going to talk about that with Catherine Beck Johnson, research fellow for legal and policy studies here at the Family Research Council. And and let me ask you, do you mind some more good news? Uh, I know I don't want to overwhelm you, but yesterday we discussed how the Biden administration dropped a proposed rule change for Obamacare. Now, that proposal would have forced taxpayers to fund transgender surgeries and hormone treatments. Well, the pushback to their extreme agenda has been intense. And let me tell you, it's been effective. Now they've announced a delay in another effort to advance their LGBTQ agenda. Meg Kilgannon is here to tell us all about it. And finally, George Barna is in the house, or should I say studio. He joins me later to talk about... Where the worldview view, the confusion that so many children have today is coming from, where, it's, where is it coming from? Well, the answer might surprise you. I certainly hope it will challenge you. That's coming up later here on Washington Watch. The website's TonyPerkins.com. Everything's archived right there at the website TonyPerkins.com. All right, our verse for today comes from Judges chapter 8, verse 28, and verse 33. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals. Godly leadership brings peace and prosperity because it restrains the fallen nature of man. That's what we're told in Scripture. If you have not already joined us for our Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan, I invite you to join us. Go to frc.org slash Bible. With the unprecedented developments this week surrounding the Supreme Court and the choice that America may soon have, that is to choose, choose life, I'll be hosting a special edition of Pray Vote Stand tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. How could such a leak happen at the nation's highest court that prides itself on being above politics? We're going to talk about that with someone who worked at the court, who, ta- who will take us behind the veil of the nation's highest court. And Senator Dr. Roger Marshall has delivered over 5,000 babies. As a doctor, we'll discuss what this moment in American history really means. That's tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern, prayvotestand.org. Well, as I mentioned, the left is up in arms over the draft opinion from the Supreme Court. The anger is not over the fact that it was leaked, but that it overturns Roe v. Wade. Now, there have been vows to push for the codification of Roe, which is an omission that it never was the law to begin with. There is the push to eliminate the filibuster, the expansion of the Supreme Court, or better known as court packing. And Democrats are trying to rally voters to head for the polls, falsely claiming the draft ruling bans abortion across the country, when in fact it would simply return the issue of abortion back to the legislative process where the courts found it 50 years ago. Will American voters buy what the Democrats are selling? Joining me now to talk about this and more is U.S. Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma. He is a member of the Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs. And as I mentioned, the chairman of the Values Action Team in the Senate. Senator Lankford, welcome back to the program.
0: Tony, great to see you again.
1: All right. Let me just start out of the chute, Senator. What is your take on the this leaked draft opinion from the Supreme Court?
0: Well, grateful for the opinion. I hope it actually holds. We don't know at this point uh, for all of us that have been working so hard to be able to protect the lives of children uh, for so many years. It's a great moment if it holds. And again, we don't know because, again, it's a draft from February. We know it's not the final version. Um, And this particular draft has five different justices saying that they're going to overturn Roe and Casey. That's a day of great celebration for so many children uh, that are yet to come. Uh, But I'm reserving it and keeping my cautious optimism until we actually get the final version. As far as having a leak coming out of the Supreme Court, it is a horrible day for the Supreme Court uh, because the court has always been a place that's trying to stay above politics. Clearly, this is someone who's trying to inject politics into this moment when the court is all about what does the law say? The legislative branch deals with how do we actually respond to people and the Constitution? The court just deals with what does the law say? And uh, we want to keep them above the political fray.
1: Senator, how do you respond to your Democratic colleagues that are essentially running around saying the sky is falling with this opinion and that the court is imposing, imposing its view on the nation?
0: Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. My my first comment was when uh, Chuck Schumer came forward and said, we're going to have a vote in the Senate immediately to be able to codify Roe. My actual first thought was a smile when I said, well, Quite frankly, that means Chuck Schumer agrees with the Supreme Court that this should have been a legislative issue all along, and that the court was simply correcting an error from the court in 1973. Remember, abortion has been around forever in this sense. And so for 200 years of our history, the legislative branch, the people through their elected officials made a decision about abortion in every state and nationally. And then the court stole that away in 1973, not based on a law or the Constitution, They just said they wanted it and created out of nothing this new viability standard. And what this court apparently is doing, if this draft opinion holds true, is correcting a 50-year error and going back to a 200-year history of how our country has dealt with abortion. So at that point, my state many other states will engage to be able to say, we're going to protect the lives of every single child and to be able to stand with the value of every child. And as the left rages, uh, right now, screaming, How dare they? How dare they? I simply say back to them, Yes, how dare I actually stand up for the value of every child? And how dare you actually say that some children are expendable and some children are valuable? I think every child is valuable, and I'm glad to be able to stand on that spot.
1: And I stand with you on that, Senator. I, I think my take on this, of course, I'm somewhat biased having served in a state legislature. But I think the states have got us to this point. In fact, I had your governor on uh, last week talking about the bill that Oklahoma just passed, uh, making uh, abortion a crime uh, in the state of Oklahoma. I think we've gotten here, and I think the states have communicated to the court, we can handle this. We are prepared to handle this. Let us do our job in legislating the values that the American people want.
0: Yeah, there's, there's a partnership here on this. Obviously, on the federal side, especially in the Senate, Our work was to try to put in judges and justices that would just follow the Constitution. They've got to be able to go back and correct an error from 1973 in the court. And so our focus for years has been, how do we get good justices? We don't know how they're going to rule on this. There's no way to be able to provide a guess. All I need to know is, are you going to follow the law? And then we need states that are going to speak out for the value of their citizens and are willing to be able to say, we want to protect every child. And then they're also going to step up and say, we're going to work on adoption. We're going to work on foster care. We're going to work on parental responsibility and making men that are delinquent to be able to pay child support. All of those things are a part of caring for every single child, but that'll be on the state side. So it's been a great process to be able to get to this point, and we're hopeful uh, that we'll actually see an actual final decision in the days ahead.
1: Yeah, I, I am very optimistic that the states are going to take this when the court gives it back to where it should be. And we're going to see this country once again at least be a majority- Uh, in terms of being supportive of life. Let me switch gears here, Senator. Uh, The Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, Secretary Mayorkas, has been getting an earful over the department's new disinformation governance board, aka the Ministry of Truth. You have been spearheading an effort there to make sure this goes nowhere. Tell us about it.
0: Yeah, I have. In fact, I just met with Ellie Mayorkas just about an hour ago Uh, Walking through this exact issue to say, okay, number one, you've created this disinformation governance board. We have no information about it. We have no documents. We have no charter. We have no details. You keep saying that we're going to create guardrails around um, all of our constitutional rights, but we have no information on that, no details at all. And so my first press is you keep telling me what it's not. I have no idea what it is. I also am not going to provide funding for this because the FBI already has an entity that deals with criminal issues and disinformation. And the State Department has an entity dealing with foreign terrorism and being able to act on this. So what is this new feature on it? And on top of all that, I said, the person that you selected to be able to run your disinformation campaign is a person who believed that the Steele dossier in 2016 was real. Side Hunter Biden's laptop and said that was actually campaign and, and accused it of being disinformation when it was actually real and spread that. So literally his disinformation czar that he's setting up there has been one who has actively been spreading disinformation. So he had no answer for that other than to say, we're going to sit down, I'll get you all the information on it. But we've been very outspoken to say, we're not going to allow funding for this. This is redundant. And this is not consistent with protecting Americans values to be able to speak.
1: Well, I am uh, once again grateful for you fighting for this on Capitol Hill, for our freedoms and protection of those freedoms. I know and we're out of time, not able to talk about something else you've been leading on. So we're going to have to get you back on to talk about uh, your efforts to try to prevent this growing relationship between Iran and China, which is a great threat. And, and we're just this administration is just rolling out the red carpet for these two countries to work together who are, uh, quite frankly, an existential threat threat to America and to many of our allies. Senator, uh, thanks so much for being with us. Always great to see you, talk with you.
0: Always good to see you.
1: And uh, by the way, folks, this, uh, a a report out, probably unpack this maybe tomorrow, uh, a report showing that the CDC used data collected from cell phones to track Americans to see if they were abiding by curfews and other restrictions during the COVID virus. Uh, This shows we cannot trust government with this kind of information. Talk about disinformation. It's coming from some of our nation's leaders. All right, coming up, although we know it's not final, we're going to take a closer look at this leaked draft opinion from the Supreme Court. What were the major takeaways? We're going to go over this after the break, so don't go away. More Washington Watch to come right after this.
3: Sign up at frc.org subscriptions.
5: At Family Research Council, it is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've decided to be proactive to make sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. That is why we've created a tech subscription platform. If we get canceled, you can stay informed and still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? to six seven seven four
1: two. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host, and the website is tonyperkins.com. So glad that you are with us on this Wednesday afternoon. Now, this coming Friday and Saturday, Saturday, the FRC Stand Courageous team will be in High Point, North Carolina, for a Stand Courageous Men's Conference. Now, as I mentioned uh, earlier in the week, I hope you know Sunday is Mother's Day. Uh, this would be a great gift for husbands, for your wives to say, hey, I'm going to a men's conference. Uh, ladies, it would be a great opportunity for you to send your husband uh, to a men's conference. Because nothing is more impactful for a family than a man who is walking close to the Lord and leading his family to do such. And we're going to talk about that, actually, later in the program uh, with George Barna. Anyway, to find out more about the Stand Courageous Conference that's going to be in High Point, North Carolina, May 6th and 7th, go to standcourageous.com. All right, the, the leaked draft opinion from the Supreme Court that would overturn Roe v. Wade has been getting a lot of attention Mostly from the left. It's been interesting. The right's been focused on the leak. Uh, The left has been focused on the draft Uh, And they're claiming that the ruling bans abortions all across the country now This should be uh, quite frankly job number one for Biden's ministry of truth because there's no truth in that statement Uh, Oh, I forgot. He's making these outrageous claims himself
0: What are the next things that are going to be attacked?
1: Because this mega crowd is really the most extreme political organization that's existed in American history. That was the president asked about the decision from the court that somehow the mega crowd is the one that has brought the court to this point where they are turning the issue of Roe v. Wade back to the states. So here with me now to unpack this draft ruling. And again, I emphasize it's a draft, as we were talking about. But, um, even if it's anywhere near this, uh, the final opinion from the court, it is seismic. It is very significant. And with me to talk about this, Catherine Beck Johnson. She's a research fellow for legal and policy studies here at the Family Research Council. Catherine, welcome back to Washington Watch.
4: Thanks for having me, Tony. It's great to be here.
1: All right. So we've made very clear this is a draft. We understand it's a draft. However, it's got, uh, you know, it's got five justices on it. And if it's anywhere near what this draft is, it's pretty significant.
4: That's right. Like you said, it's a draft. But when I saw it, I was just over the moon. This was a full rebuke of Roe and Casey. Justice Alito was writing for what we think is the majority. The political political article said they had five votes, so it would have been the majority opinion saying that Roe and Casey were wrongly decided. This is a groundbreaking overturning case that, you know, there's just few in history of these cases that were so wrongly decided they have been overturned. And in the opinion, Justice Alito said, you know, at the time the 14th Amendment was written, abortion was illegal in in every single state. So this is not rooted in this is not grounded or rooted in our nation's history. This is preventing states from protecting life and therefore it is time for it to be overruled. And he said it is ordered.
1: Now in this almost 100 pages, I think 98 pages, mm-hmm. he goes back and as you said, refutes the history point by point that was used to wrongly decide Roe. This is everything that, Pro-lifers were praying and hoping for.
4: That's right. When I saw this opinion, I thought, "Wow, this is what we have been." I, I've been in the movement for about 15 years. You've been in it for longer. This is what legal giants have been working for as suit for almost 50 years since Roe was handed down. This is what we've been praying for, working for—you know, making our life mission. And this actually is the first time seen. It was a draft, but the first time seen an opinion by the Supreme Court overturning that.
1: Yeah, some would say, um, and I know I'm going to hear this, uh, well, I thought we wanted abortion outlawed and that the court would do that. That, That's never been what we've said because we believe it should be in the hands of the legislatures. It should be in the hands of the policymakers to decide this. We're not wanting the court to do what the left wanted them to do 50 years ago and impose abortion on the nation. In fact, the work we've been doing in the educating of people, the care pregnancy centers, the technology is what has led the states in the last decade to to pass hundreds of pro-life laws and bring us to a point where now, if this opinion is handed down, nearly half of the states will outlaw abortion.
4: That's right. This opinion makes it very clear that they are returning abortion to the elected representatives, to the people through their elected representatives. Now, of course, we will continue to work for the day until every single life is protected in the law. But this opinion makes it clear that they are wanting that to be done through the legislatures right. and through And that's the what states. we
1: want. We, we want to work through the legislative process, winning hearts and minds to an understanding that every human life regardless on uh, the zip code that it's conceived in or the side of the tracks it's born on, it has value because it is a reflection of the God who made it.
4: That's right. We want to be able to teach people that, educate people that. And the ultimate goal is that every child is welcomed in love and protected in the law.
1: And we're so much closer.
4: We are. If this opinion comes down and it's true that Roe and Casey are overturned, this is the biggest victory in the pro-life movement in 50 years. This is the best case outcome of what could have happened in the Dobbs case. And this is just, you know, us continuing the fight for all life to be protected. But I can't express how big this is and what a ginormous step this is for life.
1: Uh, now, folks, um, I think we have a map. I don't know if it's uh, if we've got a graphic here for those watching that we can put up. But I do know we have it at Tony Perkins dot com, a post row graphic that shows where the states are on this issue so that you kind of know what work you have ahead of you, because this is not the end. Uh, this is just the beginning. I mean, there's so much work to be done.
4: That's right. This is the beginning of the pro-life movement. And you know, this is now where we work with the states, where we work to educate the people on the ground, where we work to protect every life. And like you said, it's just the beginning and we're not done until every pre-born child is protected in the law.
1: Yes. And so that, that takes on many different um, efforts. Mm-hmm. The care pregnancy center work has to just, has to, to just multiply rapidly. The, the adoption agencies, the, the faith-based adoption agencies, that's why, that's why we've got to defend their rights to operate according to their faith. We need the adoption agencies. We need men and women of faith to run for public office to make sure these state legislatures uphold the sanctity of life. This is not a time... To, uh, to to do victory laps. It's time to roll up our sleeves and go to work.
4: Exactly. And show the pro-choice side that we meant every word, that we care about the woman and we care about the child, and we are here to work with both of them.
1: Yeah. Catherine Beck Johnson, always great to see you.
4: You too. Thanks for having me.
1: All right. And folks, tonight we'll have much more about this at 8 p.m. Eastern time for us in a special edition of Pray Vote Stand. You can tune in At prayvotestand.org. All right, coming up next, more good news. The Biden administration has been pushing their LGBTQ ideology, but they're finding strong pushback from the American public. We're going to talk about it. Don't go away.
6: What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs.
1: This is Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. So good to have you with us. The website is TonyPerkins.com. Now, yesterday on the show, we discussed how the Biden administration has abandoned its plans, at least for now, to force millions of taxpayers to pay for other people's gender transition procedures. That means surgeries, hormone treatments, even for children. Well, something else that the administration has been pushing for is getting delayed. It's planned to force Title IX sex discrimination prohibitions uh, as encompassing discrimination based on gender identity and sexual orientation. The Biden administration's self-imposed April deadline for the proposed new rule was shifted to this month, as the Education Department Secretary Miguel Cardona revealed last week when asked about the progress in a committee hearing.
5: We are working on... uh the new rules and we're expecting uh next month that they uh are released in may
1: so what could be behind the delay from an administration that has been so quick and relentless when it comes to pushing the lgbtq ideology joining me now to talk about this is frc senior fellow for education studies meg kilgannon who served at the u.s department of education in the trump administration uh meg welcome back to the program
2: Thanks, Tony. Great to see you.
1: So uh, two days in a row, we're talking about rules that have not come about. This by the president said he wanted this in April. Now they pushed it to May. What's going on?
2: Well, this the rulemaking process at Ed is very complicated. And and uh, the, the rule that for Title IX that was released in the DeVos administration wasn't released until 2020 because it took a long, lot of careful deliberation, including people from outside groups so this accelerated timeline they've set for themselves is very difficult to meet in the, under the best of circumstances. Now,
1: if they go through this process kind of sloppily, you know, not crossing all the T's, dotting the I's, does it make it susceptible to challenge?
2: Sure. Well, the content of the rule, which I'll get to in a minute, definitely is going to make it susceptible to challenge. But what I think they didn't anticipate and what I was really pleased to see was a very fulsome effort on the part of our friends, on the, uh, you know, in part of the vast right wing conspiracy or however we're characterizing ourselves these days to really make um, substantive and important comments in the rulemaking process to them that they're going to have to consider uh, and and deal
1: with. And so. So like in the. Uh, Obamacare rulemaking process. All of the feedback they got from the American people kind of put them back on their heels. Right.
2: Exactly. Exactly. So leaning into that and making sure that people are are ex- exercising their voices in the, in their localities, um, that's also a factor in this, okay. um, because they they understand that yes, they're going to reissue the Title IX rule, which basically dealt with uh, university Title IX enforcement. What they would like to do is expand the definition of sex to include gender identity, making it Title IX meaningless for women and, you know, endangering children.
1: So just to to be clear for our viewers and listeners, the, the rule, a rule is proposed in this, in this case, it's they were going to propose the rule this month or in April. They've now pushed it to the end of this month. So once the rule is proposed, then there's a period of comment from the public. Then they have to respond to those comments. And then, you know, at a certain point, the rule can go into effect.
2: Right. And and even then, the rule could face legal challenge. And if they decide to redefine sex to mean se- gender identity, I think you can expect a very, very significant legal well, challenge. And it's around not that.
1: just... You know, groups like ours and our supporters and constituents across the country that are pushing back members of Congress are doing the same. In fact, we had uh, 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 Greg Stubbe was on the program earlier in this week talking about his uh, protection of uh, women's sports, uh, that he's uh, pushing for a discharge. They have a discharge petition. He's trying to get the 218 signatures to force a vote on on the House floor. This has become a big issue. I mean, I've been you and I have been around a little while. And I would say 10 years ago, you couldn't get Republicans, m- many Republicans, to touch these issues. Sure. I remember when I fought some of these early battles against the whole LGBTQ agenda. Uh, of course, back then, I don't even know that we called it the LGBT. It was just the homosexuals that were pushing a lot of these things. And uh, the gay lobby. And people didn't want to talk about it. They weren't for it, but they didn't want to talk Do about talk- it. Uh, But now you have Republicans leading the charge against this.
2: Well, when the issue starts to impact children instead of just focusing around what adults might like to do in the privacy of their own bedrooms, when these ideas must be promulgated to children and explained to children outside the purview of parents and in secret from parents, uh, this is when the public kind of has yeah, to speak absolutely. Up. And then
1: what's happened? You know, this has gone from the privacy of someone's bedroom to the chalkboard in the classroom.
2: Exactly. And
1: and the parents are saying, no, no. I mean, it's like Tip O'Neill, former House Speaker, years ago said, all politics are local. There's nothing more local than what's happening with your children.
2: Absolutely. Um, and it's great that people are becoming engaged, and we have lots of folks that are running for office now, running for school board, running for local county executive positions, and that is despa- we desperately need for that to continue.
1: And uh, on the way out, put, put in a plug for where people who want to run for school board can find out more information on how to do it.
2: Uh, you go to www.frcaction.org
1: schools. Somehow I knew you would have an answer. For that. <laughs> Meg Kilgannon, always great to talk with you.
2: Great to be here. Thank, Thank you.
1: Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, folks, again tonight, eight PM Eastern time, a special edition of Pray Vote Stand. We're gonna take a deeper dive into the the leak at the Supreme Court. We're gonna have a former clerk who was at the Supreme Court's gonna to talk to us about how this could have happened. And we're gonna be talking with Dr. Roger Marshall, Senator from Kansas, about what this means going forward. And then we're gonna have some prayer points. How you can pray. All right, coming up next here on Washington Watch, there is a crisis in our children. They have a confused worldview. Where is that coming from? How do we fix it? Well, joining me after the break, George Barna is in the studio with me. Stick around. More Washington Watch to come right after this.
8: Visit frc.org slash internships to apply.
1: I'm Tony Perkins, and this is Washington Watch. The website is TonyPerkins.com. As I mentioned earlier in the program, this coming Friday evening and Saturday, we have our Stand Courageous Men's Conference in High Point, North Carolina. And men, if you're within driving distance, in fact, at this point, if you left, you could get there from almost anywhere in the United States. But if you're in the area, we'd love to have you at the Stand Courageous Men's Conference. To find out more, go to StandCourageous.com. As the saying goes, monkey see, monkey do. So if we're wondering why the next generation appears confused and scrambled, well, at the risk of overdoing it on the cliches, the apple doesn't far, fall far from the tree, and that's what my next guest has found from his research. Over the past couple of months, the Cultural research, Cultural research Center at Arizona Christian University has been releasing a series of reports addressing the current crisis in parenting and presenting ways that parents can improve their ability to raise spiritual champions. Joining me now to discuss this is the man behind the research, our good friend George Barna, who is director of Arizona Christians Cultural Research Center, and he's a senior fellow here at the Family Research Council's Center for Biblical Worldview. George, welcome back to the program.
9: Thanks, Tony. It's good to be here.
1: Always great to have you on the program. Always love to talk to you, see what you're up to. Um, I've been waiting for some good news. Uh, (laughs) Maybe we're going to get to that point if we do the right things. So let's just start with some of the numbers. Uh, When we look at the worldview of young people, where are we?
9: Well, we can look at that different ways. We can look at it generationally. We know with millennials, only 4% have a biblical worldview. When we look at Gen Z, the next younger generation, it appears that they're going to come in at about 2%. Uh, The most recent research we've been doing is among parents, parents of our youngest children, those under the age of 13. And there we find that only 2% of the parents of our young children have a biblical worldview. If we were to say, well, you can't expect that of most Americans, what about, say, born-again Christians who have young children? Even there, it's only 8%. So we've really got a long way to go.
1: All right. Brings up the obvious. You know, if I'm a parent and I want to teach my child to swim, but I can't swim, how am I going to teach the child to swim? Unless I get resources and I make it intentional and I bring others in to help. So if a parent, and we're talking about, it, it appears the younger the parent, the fewer have biblical worldviews.
9: Right. And if they don't have it, how can you teach what you don't have? Well, that's exactly the problem that we've got. But it relates to another issue that we see in parenting which is that the chief parenting strategy of most young parents today, most parents of young children today, is kind of an outsourcing approach to parenting, a subcontracting approach Mm -hmm. where parents love their kids. They want to do right by them, but they're busy, they're distracted, they're overwhelmed, and so they say, you know, I really don't have the time, I don't have the skills, but I love my kids, so what I'll do is I'll go out and I'll hire the best. I'll get the experts And so they hire teachers, they hire coaches, they hire tutors, they hire pastors. They hire all kinds of outsiders to raise their children for them. Now, the difficulty is because worldview isn't anywhere in the mental matrix of most parents. They're not thinking about their child's worldview. They're just taking people who have good skills without taking any account of but what are the values? What are the beliefs that these people are going to teach my children? What kind of behaviors are they going to model for my children? And so consequently a lot of not so great stuff gets shared.
1: When you look at looking at some of this the results of the research, uh, nine out of ten parents of children under the age of 13 embrace a muddled worldview that mixes a variety of alternative life philosophies most of which have little to do with biblical truth. Where does this come from?
9: Well, when we look at those parents, we know that, by and large, their parents didn't have a biblical worldview. Parents we know biblically have the primary responsibility for inculcating that 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 comes from
1: Deuteronomy chapter 6. Absolutely,
9: yeah. And there are a number of verses in Proverbs that support that. So we know that it wasn't passed on to them by their parents we look at the church experiences that most of them had and children in most churches in America are not seen as a spiritual priority. Now we want children to come because what do we measure? Numbers of people showing up.
1: But what are we teaching them?
9: That's the issue is that we're not really teaching them any kind of systematic theology. We're, we're, We're telling them Bible stories but not teaching them biblical truths. Yeah, and part of the reason for that is that we want the kids to leave with a smile on their face. We want them to be happy. We want them to maybe make a friend. We want them to have a good time.
1: And and, and we think that's what will bring them back.
9: Well, more importantly, from the church's perspective, that's what will bring the the parents back. Happy child, happy parents. But at some point—and I get that.
1: All right, I get that. I've been a pastor, and I've—in fact, I grew up in an unchurched home, and I went to a vacation Bible school— And that's how my whole family came to Christ, and honestly, it's because they had good cookies, and I wanted (laughs) to go back. So I I get that, I understand that. But at some point, you've got to transition from the cookies and the Kool-Aid to biblical truths that bring about a biblical worldview. And I'm grateful that the church I was in that they did that.
9: They they taught the Scripture, and so I developed that biblical worldview. But I'm willing to bet that even in your case, we haven't talked about this, I don't know, but just based on the averages, your church may have done a good job with you, but their primary responsibility really is to support your parents, to equip them to raise you. And the fact that you have a biblical worldview isn't because of the half hour a week that you heard teaching at a church. It's because you live with parents who had a biblical worldview. It, it,
1: it was, but I, I would say this, in my case, and I, I do have my parents love the Lord, they brought me to church, and, and, and we did have those conversations. And, but I will tell you what really made the difference in my life was that both the church and my parents put a... Priority on the Word of God. So, from a young age, reading the Word of God, it was the Word of God in the Word that developed the biblical worldview because it's the application of God's Word to the world around us that
9: leads to a biblical worldview. And that relates to something else that we found in our current study, which is that young children are watching their parents, they're listening to their parents, and they're trying to put those two things together to make sense of if this is what my parents say is right. What does it look like? Right. Yeah. And the problem is they're seeing a contradiction between yeah. word and deed. Right. And so the conclusion yeah. we discovered that children are drawing is, what a shame, my parents seem as confused as I am. Yeah. So this faith that yeah. they're talking about must not have the answers. Right. I'm going to have to look elsewhere to get it just as I guess my parents are too. Right.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can recall my dad reading, you know, Our Daily Bread in the Bible, and so I saw the Bible was important to him, so it became important to me. So there has to be the connection between what the parent says is good and what they actually do. And and I think, and I've said this even before seeing your research, that this whole rise of the nuns is a part of the, you know, just parents have not been authentic and that they see in their parents, they see one thing on Sunday morning, but they see something else the rest of the week. And that, it just doesn't add up for the kids. And so they're walking away from the faith because they
9: don't see it as real and authentic. And when we talk about a muddled worldview with their parents, we have to remember that a worldview isn't just what you believe, it's also how you you behave, because you do what you believe.
1: Yeah, and look, folks, I'm I'm not trying to be harsh here, but... I, I, I'm consistent, I will say that. I have said repeatedly, it is up to the parents to teach the children. That's what the Scripture says. And so I'm not, uh, you know, George and I are not giving our opinion. I mean, yes, we're taking these studies and showing you what they say, but it's, the, it's God's Word. He's the one that says parents are responsible for teaching their kids. So I can't
9: apologize for that. And we're not doing a good job of that. How do we fix this? Well, we've got to realize that a child needs a worldview. So if we don't help them develop it, somebody else will. Well, and that worldview is
1: formulated not when they're a teenager off at high school. That begins when they're
9: in the cradle. Yeah, we, we found that between 15 to 18 months of age is when most children start forming their worldview. Why is that? Because your worldview is the center of your decision-making every choice that you make goes through that decision-making filter your worldview. By the age of 13, it's almost completely in place. So it's important that we do this when, when they're young. And so that means that we've got to be very intentional and strategic about it. And we've got, and part of that strategy means also that the media that we allow them to be exposed to, we discovered that that, that's the thing that has the greatest influence On the development of the child's worldview. Well, would this also speak to the fact
1: that the government wants early childhood education? Could there be someone on that side that sees the value of being able to indoctrinate these children at a very early age?
9: Listen, Mussolini, Stalin, Mao Zedong, all these leaders and more authoritarian, totalitarian leaders said, Give me your children until seven, eight, nine. They used different ages, it was all before the age of 12 and I will have them for life. They understood that that's when their worldview develops and they wanted to be there to do it. So public schools, absolutely. We found that that was one of the four major influences on worldview, media, arts and entertainment, major influence, the laws of the land, a major influence and people say, how can that be? How would kids know? Because that's what teaches us right from wrong, partly. Yeah, right. So it matters.
1: So. Uh, I know we're looking at this, uh, the results of this worldview study, which point to very significant problems in terms of the number of young people. I mean, we've, we're have we almost at a point where the a biblical worldview, if we go, what, one more generation,
9: is it even going to exist? I mean, if we continue this path? You know, I, I let me give you a little bit of encouragement on that. Okay, I mean, thank you. Thank know, you thank the you. the reality is that God always uses a remnant. Yeah. And so we have a remnant of about 15 million adults across the country that have a biblical worldview. Now, when you look at what the LGBTQ community did with 1%, maybe 1.5% of the population, and they completely changed the nation's attitudes with that small group, we got a bigger group. Well, but here's how they did it. Um, They were
1: vocal and they they were out front with that. The problem I see in the Christian community is that, number one, if we don't have a fully formed worldview, we're hesitant to defend it, and so we shrink back in silence. And that's why we have this program. That's why the Family Research Council, and you're a part of our Center for Biblical Worldviews, we want to, equip number one, equip parents to be able to understand how to teach the worldview to their children, and we've got resources. We're actually working on more resources, a Sunday school curriculum for or churches, so pastors can do this, Sunday school teachers. So there's confidence, number one, in standing up. But bottom line, George,
9: it requires courage. It does, but it also requires preparation. And so, you know, when you ask, what do we do? Well, number one, parents have to be thinking about worldview. Yeah. You know, it's not even on the radar right yeah. now. we got to get it on the yeah. radar. They've got to recognize that it's their responsibility to develop it and their children. And then they've got to get the resources to get that job done. Well, you know,
1: I think one of the places to start, and I, and, and again, we're, we're, we're working on resources. There's other resources out there. But the Bible's a great place to start. I mean, it really is. Uh, and I've talked about this many times on our program. That's why the Family Research Council has uh, this two-year Bible reading plan. It's our second iteration, going through it once again, is just reading the Bible 10 or 15 minutes a day, doing it as a family, talking about it. We have our, our Sunday afternoon, right after lunch, is our discipleship time. We talk about what we read and its application to the world. And it's been amazing to watch my children grow in... in the faith of their fathers has become their faith and they begin to
9: analyze for me what's happening in the world around us according to scripture and i'll throw out one other idea for people to think about as they're reading the bible we found patterns in the data that suggest if you don't have some cornerstone some foundational biblical truths in place it's hard for you to build on your foundation because it's made of sand so understanding the nature and character of god understanding the purpose of your life yeah believing that there is absolute moral truth that it's contained in the bible these are some well, of the those kinds are foundational of, that's what i'm saying yeah. but we know that most parents don't believe those things and so until they get those foundations in place it's going to be hard for them to grow spiritually
1: well, and that's what defines biblical worldview is you you've got to have that before you can move forward in teaching absolutely absolutely it can be turned around Yes, but it's going to take effort
9: and we have to be intentional we have to be strategic we have to be consistent
1: well I go back to to Deuteronomy 6 and Moses' instruction to the children of Israel was intentional whether you're sitting down, whether you're walking in the way where you're lying down rising up sitting, it, it was everything Everything I, we, we are to be, I believe, as Christian parents, consumed with passing our faith on to our children.
9: It's the most important thing we can do. And we did an interesting study a few years back where I looked at parents who raised kids who became spiritual champions as adults. They're the aberration in America. Yeah. And we wanted to find out, how did you do this? And we talked about the parents and the adult children, now they're adults. And the one thing that the, that most of those adult children told us is, My parents were consistent. They said something. They did it. It never changed. I believed it must be right.
1: Wow. Well, George, you and I could talk all night. In fact, we will. You just stay right there because we're (laughs) going to let everybody else go, and you and I are going to continue to talk. George, always great to have you on the program.
9: Thanks so much, Tony.
1: And it was great to have you with us today as well. The website, TonyPerkins.com, lots of resources there for you. And let me remind you again tonight, a deeper dive into the leaked draft opinion of the Supreme Court tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern time on PrayVoteStand.org. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, you've done everything you can do when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you've taken your stand. By all means, keep standing.
0: Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported.